the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. The only thing you can really do to deal with the fear is just a lot of prayer and fasting and just really try to get in the Word and rein in the fear uh, so that you can really trust more because fear together, it's not fear and faith. It's it's either going to be fear or faith and they are incompatible to exist together. Perfect love drives out fear, the Bible says. So I interpret that to mean the more I get Jesus, the more I get into His Word and the perfect love of the Lord, the more I get more of Him than the less fear I have. The stronger you grow in your faith in Jesus, the less fear you'll have in this world. Nothing this world can throw at you can compare to the incomprehensible love and hope that's found in your Savior. As Pastor Gary continues his study of the Gospel of Mark in today's message, He'll challenge us to let go of the fear that so easily ensnares us. Set your eyes on Christ, not on the temporary pleasures and comforts of this world, and your hope will be in something that can't be taken away from you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 5, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Now, how would you feel if you were Jairus? Be honest. Right, your daughter is dying at home. Don't be, don't be super spiritual with me, okay? You'd be standing in the crowd and you'd be thinking to yourself, I was here first. Hello, dear woman, I don't know who you are or what you need, but my daughter is dying. You are taking Jesus away from my need. Now, there's no mention of this, but I'm just, I'm wondering, maybe Jairus is more spiritual than I am. I'd be sitting there going, I'm sure this woman is important, but my daughter's more important. Mm-hmm. You know, come on. <laughs> come on. And, and yet, in the beauty of this moment, what I love about Jesus is he's never hurried. He's never rushed. He's never frantic. And he, and he never sees, quote, things as interruptions. This, this woman is not an interruption. This is an appointment. And Jesus is sensitive to that. This is an appointment. I'm just going to tarry right here and minister to this woman until such time that it's time to move on. And how many times, looking at our own lives, a little introspection here, do we get tied to this sense of, I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I, and I must be here, and I must be there, and I, and I got the schedule going, and my phone's beeping at me, and I got to... And sometimes we miss those divine appointments because we're rushing to the next thing that has to be done, and I'm constantly challenged by a story like this to just make, especially as a pastor ministry, especially just always try to be... Sen- but this goes for anybody. Always try to be sensitive to 
what is that still small voice of the Lord saying is, is the necessary thing right now? Because even though none of us wants to get this careless attitude about, well, I'll just show up late at the next appointment because, you know, I'm on a God assignment. You know, don't start doing that, okay? You know, sorry I'm late, but I'm always on God assignments. You know, don't be taking things to a weird extreme. But I'm saying every once in a while, we may need to be interrupted because there's more of a divine appointment and we just can't be so bent on the next thing and the next thing and the next moment. We have to just stop and sometimes be sensitive. Is this, does the Lord want me to stop right now and and minister this person, help this person? What does God want me to do? And just kind of always be tuned in to how the Lord wants to interrupt our schedule because he has something more of a divine appointment for us to be involved with. And, and so I love this about Jesus. Just not hurry, just always on this divine schedule, sensitive to the will of the Father. But Jairus is, is here. And uh, as, as you think about just a truism related to this, uh, is that God's delay is not his denial. The Lord was delayed in getting to Jairus. It wasn't a denial of, Jair- of Jairus' need. Sometimes when we feel like the Lord is not doing what we want when we want him to do it, don't interpret that as the Lord is rejecting you or he's denying your request. God is always doing what he wills in his perfect timing, and our challenge is always going to be in aligning our sense of timing with the timing of the Lord. It's always going to be a challenge. And God is always on time. He's never early and he's never late. He's always on time. For Jairus, this is even going to be a more spectacular miracle than he was prepared for. He was hoping Jesus would just come and heal her before she, before she died. And, and Jesus is going to do something even more amazing than that. So God's delay is not his denial. And as, and as you see uh, what Jesus says here, verse 35, it says, While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? You know, what a bunch of encouraging guys they are. You know, just like, well, your daughter's dead. Might as well move along. Jesus got other things to do. But ignoring what they said... Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. It's another truism. Faith and fear, fear and faith are incompatible. And for all of us who have experienced uh, fears over different things and we want to exercise faith, you know, sometimes the biggest, the biggest challenge is to deal with the fear before we can even really exercise the faith uh, because the two are incompatible. And, uh, and, and sometimes there's... The only thing you can really do to deal with the fear is just a lot of prayer and fasting and just really try to get in the word and rein in the fear uh, so that you can really trust more because fear together, it's not fear and faith. It's, it's either going to be fear or faith and they are incompatible to exist together. Perfect love drives out fear, the Bible says. So I interpret that to mean the more I get Jesus, the more I get into his word and the perfect love of the Lord, the more I get more of him than the less fear I have. And so um, faith and fear, fear and faith are incompatible. Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Verse 37, he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother James. Jesus does have an inner circle out of the 12. He has three here, Peter, James, and John. It's not favoritism. They're just three that he poured himself into to, to a greater degree. And verse 38, when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Now, in those days, they had professional mourners. Can you believe that? But they did. 
they paid people to come to your house and just cry and wail. Oh. And, uh, and here they are doing their thing, getting an Academy Award. In verse 39, it says that he went in and he said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Now, it, it isn't that Jesus is out of touch with reality here, or that he's make-believing, or he's downplaying it. The, the truth is that there are often references in the New Testament to people who have died as having fallen asleep. Because in the case of this young girl, who's probably before the age of accountability, and that's a whole other Bible study, um, and, and for believers... There's a euphemism in Scripture that, that refers to death as those who have fallen asleep. There are many references in the Bible. I'll give you just a few of them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Talking about the misuse of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 15.6 says, After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time when he rose from the dead, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 15, it's mentioned three times. Listen, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.10, it says that Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Listen, the reason that the early church, including Jesus here in Mark 5, used the term asleep to define death is because in Christ, death should never be seen as something final. When we are in Christ, death is like going to sleep in one place and waking up in heaven. It is like sleep in that sense. So the early church, including Jesus, avoided often the, the, the use of the word death. Someone has died because if they're a believer, they refer to them as they have fallen asleep. It was a more, it was a softer term to communicate the truth of eternity so that people wouldn't get stuck in the thought that dead meant finality. Death, in, when you're a believer, does not mean finality. Death is a transition. It is a transition from here to eternity. You go instantly. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when a believer knows Christ, the moment you're, that you experience death, your, your spirit separates from your body and you go to be with the Lord. So that's why Jesus is saying here that she is only asleep. The New Testament often terms death of, of, of Christians as those who have fallen asleep in Christ because it's not final here. But she has died. Now, their response, the mourners, look, it says there in verse 40, but they laughed at him. If you have a King James Bible, it says they laughed him to scorn. They laughed him to scorn. I mean, this is kind of like a, a wicked laughter, just, just to the place of mocking him. They are mocking him with their laughter. They're like, you don't, you don't know anything, do you? And they're just mocking him with their laughter. You've heard that kind of mocking. Somebody mocks you, or you've heard somebody mocking someone else with their laughter. That's the kind of laughter that's going on here. Now, please note, Jesus has not responded to them, okay? 
He does not correct them, admonish them. He doesn't say, who do you think you're laughing at? I'm Jesus, the son of God. I'm going to fry you like bacon. You better move on. He doesn't do any of that, okay, like we want to do. If somebody mocked you and mocked you in front of other people with laughter, you'd want to give them a piece of your mind or a piece of your fist, right? You just want to kind of, kind of lay into them and set them straight. Jesus doesn't do any of that, okay? He doesn't waste any time doing that. And I love this because it's a truism that we need to hold on to as well. Don't waste time responding to critics and mockers. Surround yourself with a small circle of trusted friends. Don't waste time. Jesus didn't waste any time defending himself, setting the record straight, making, putting these people in their place. No, he didn't even take the time, waste the time to respond to his critics or his mockers. He simply surrounded himself with a small circle of trusted friends. That's good truth. The Bible says that he put them all out. That's what it says there in the rest of verse 40. He put them all out. Proverbs 22.10 says, Drive out the mocker and out goes strife. Quarrels, insults are ended. Drive out the mocker and out goes the strife. So he puts them all out of the house. He doesn't respond to them. He just says, you guys need to go now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And he puts them out. Now all he has is Peter, James, and John and the mom and the dad. And they're in the room there, and he takes a little girl by her hand, and he says to her in his tongue, which would have been Aramaic, and this is Aramaic here, Talitha kum. Now, Talitha is derived from an Aramaic word, uh, tale, which means lamb. It's a very affectionate term that he calls her. It literally translates, my little lamb. He says to her, my little lamb, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girls stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, told them to give her something to eat. Again, he was on this divine timetable, didn't want to be made prematurely king. So he says, this is just going to be between us. Everybody in town is going to know what happens here. But don't go around broadcasting this. Just a wonderful scene here of raising her from the dead. Raising her from the dead. Imagine the joy of this mom and dad to get their little girl back literally from the dead. Well, chapter 6, verse 1 says that Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Now, this is Nazareth. He's going to move from Capernaum to Nazareth. It's about a 30-mile journey. He left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him that even he does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, wait a minute. At first it says that they were amazed. So Jesus goes back to his hometown. Again, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. So he goes to Nazareth, about 30 miles from Capernaum. There's a synagogue there. He goes into the synagogue. It's a Sabbath. And people hear that he's there in town. And they're amazed, but they're not amazed in a good way. They're like trying to figure this out. You know, um, people, people tend to dismiss what they can't explain. And they can't explain how is it that he's able to perform all these miracles, and yet, he's, isn't this just a carpenter? It's just a carpenter, son. It's just a carpenter, son. And the Greek word there for carpenter is uh, the Greek word tekton. It means handyman. And actually, it's, it's better translated stonemason. you got to remember, in the days, look, you know, this is a very stony region. The, the things that Jesus probably fashioned as a craftsman uh, were with a hammer and a chisel, not hammers and nails. Not a lot of wood that was, you don't, you're not building a lot of 
kitchen tables with wood. Uh, you're making things out of stone. It's more likely that the word refers to him as being more of a stonemason, but he worked with his hands. He's a carpenter. Um, Joseph is not mentioned here, so at this point it is believed that Joseph, his, his uh, adoptive dad, is dead. There's no mention of Joseph since Jesus was 12. When Jesus was at the synagogue, he was 12 years old. There's no further mention of Joseph, so it's likely that he's dead here. His mother is mentioned, as well as four half-brothers, uh, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. The Bible says that they all at first don't believe in him as Messiah, aside from Mary. Mary, of course, she had the revelation from the angel Gabriel directly visiting her, but, but his half-brothers uh, didn't believe in him, the Bible says, in John's gospel, and, and yet later they would because this James is the, is the same James who later writes the epistle of James. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Judas, who's mentioned here, of course not Judas Iscariot, this is another Judas, Judas also known as Jude, who will later believe and write the little epistle of Jude. So this, his half-brothers do come to faith later, but initially uh, they're not believers. Now, the people of Nazareth dismiss Jesus because they just see him as, he's just a carpenter, and, his, and he, aren't these his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and, uh, and Simon, and his sisters are here, so we had at least two half-sisters. And they took offense at him, and the Greek word for offense is their skandalizo. It means they were scandalized. They were so mad, they were bothered at him. Because this is just this is just the hometown boy. What is he doing all these miracles for? And Jesus said to him, said to them rather, verse four, only in his own hometown, among his relatives and his own house as a prophet without honor. Now, in a in a smaller sense, okay, because none of us are prophets, right? None of us is Jesus. But there's there's a truth here in that sometimes the people that you will less you will be least respected concerning your faith will be those who know you best. People you grew up with, your own family members. Complete strangers will respect your faith in Jesus more than your own family members, sometimes. Because your own family members and friends you grew up with are the people who remember you in all of your frailties. Okay? Now, now in Jesus' case, it wasn't that he had done anything wrong because he was without sin. But yet they just simply reduced him to being one of them. And so they diminished him and they dismissed who he was, okay? For you and for me, sometimes it'll be the people, you know, they remember the stuff you used to do before you became a Christian, and so they're all too familiar with all the warps and bumps of your, of your life before Christ, and so many people who know you best will respect you least in the faith. It's just kind of what Jesus is saying here. You know, in his own hometown, a prophet is without honor. And it's okay. Uh, there will be other people that will minister to your your friends and your family members if, if they don't respect and respond to you. God will bring other people uh, into their lives. But uh, nevertheless, um, he was disrespected here and not believed. And it says then in verse 5, it's a very challenging verse here theologically. I want to try to explain this to you. Verse 5, it says, he could not, notice, it doesn't say he would not, it says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them and he was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, a very challenging verse here. He could not do many miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and, and they were made well. Um, you read some commentaries on this and some will actually talk about how Jesus was limited by the faith or the lack thereof of these people. And that's just nonsense, okay? Jesus is creator, okay? He can do whatever he wants. He's all-powerful. 
he could. This needs to be understood in the sense of he physically could, but he morally could not. Okay, there's a big difference. Let, let me give you an example. If I said to you, uh, I could go, I could, I could go to Hollywood and have my picture taken rolling doobies with Miley Cyrus. Okay, I could. I could. If you don't know what a doobie is, you're better off. I could, but morally, I couldn't. Okay, morally, I, I couldn't do that. All right. It's the idea. I could, I could go downtown Leesburg and knock over an old lady and steal her purse. I could do that. But at the same time, you, you, would, you would truthfully say, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. That would be morally wrong. But you'd still use that term, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that because that's morally wrong. That's the sense in which this needs to be understood. It's could not because he morally could not express his power to its greatest degree among those who didn't believe in him. It's not that, that their faith somehow restricted the Almighty God from doing anything, and he was completely dependent upon their faith in order to exercise his power. You look at the previous story, the, the, the little girl who needed to be raised from the dead had zero faith. She's dead, okay? And Jesus is all-powerful. It's not, he's not restricted by the faith of those who need him. But in a moral sense, he will not. And that's why we use that term when we say, yeah, I could do this, but I, no, I couldn't. I couldn't do this in a moral sense. He, Jesus could not exercise his power to the fullest degree among those who simply did not believe in him. And they were the ones who were at the loss. He laid his hands on a few sick people because uh, there were some who did believe in him. Not every single person in Nazareth didn't accept to believe in him. So for those who did... And he knew their hearts, and then he exercised his power. But for those who didn't believe in him, they mocked him, uh, they dismissed him. Uh, He's not going to perform miracles and powers among those who have completely refused him and don't believe in him. And then Jesus, it says, uh, continuing there in verse 5, And then Jesus went around, teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority. This is the Greek word exousia. This is not dunamis. This is not power. That dunamis comes when the Holy Spirit falls upon um, the believers at Pentecost and continuing. This is exousia. This is, uh, this is an assigned authority that Jesus gives his twelve over evil spirits for this particular assignment. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. By the way, Matthew, when he talks about this story in chapter 10, verse 15, Matthew adds, for it will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who don't welcome you. And they went out and preached that people should repent They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is the only reference in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, to the anointing of oil for the healing of the sick. You see it again in the book of James as something that the New Testament church can practice as as, uh, as, uh, um, uh, God's prescription for um, anointing people with oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, and God's work uh, in healing the sick. But this is the only time it's mentioned in the Gospels. And it's as if here Jesus is putting them on assignment to get them ready for what's going to happen when he leaves. That the assignment is going to be given to the church, 
that they're going to be among them who will go around preaching and teaching, and they will be driving out demons, they'll be healing the sick, and it'll be an ongoing work of God's Holy Spirit uh, through the disciples who make up the early church. And thus, we are here today as a result of the continued expansion of the believers ever since this initial core of uh, disciples. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know